two statements that shape eternity. And that really, <laughs> that sounds kind of ominous. And really, it can maybe sound a tad pretentious. Two statements that shape eternity. What can two statements say? How can two statements wield such power and influence? We've been studying the book of Acts and the beginnings of the church, the origins of the early church, and one reason is to find out how this impacts our church, the church of today. Two statements. Well, what are they, and why do they matter? Well, to find out, we've got to turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. If you were with us last time or you've been listening, Peter and John, they've arrived from Jerusalem down to Samaria. And they've come to share the Holy Spirit with these new Samaritan converts who have been led to the faith by Philip the Evangelist. And this is the new Samaritan church, and it's the first church in Scripture outside of the one in Jerusalem. And that, that's one of the reasons this is so important. This is the first church plant, as it were, outside of the home church. So it's significant. And so the apostles, they've, they've come down to anoint this new church with the Spirit and to affix them into the fellowship, into fellowship with the, with the Jerusalem church. And so this morning as we pick up in, in verse 25, when they, Peter and John, when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they, along with Philip, they start back to Jerusalem. And, and they're preaching the gospel to many villages there in the, in the Samaritan region. After this undetermined period of time, time enough to install church leadership there in the, that new Samaritan church, Peter, John, and Philip, they start back. They head back home, and they're stopping along the way to preach. But we see that an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip. And he says, get ready and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, you don't have to know the map. You don't, just all you have to remember is they're going south. That Philip is called to go south from Jerusalem to Gaza, and it's a desert road. He's to separate from Peter and John. He's to travel from Samaria heading far south. His road will meet the Jerusalem road in the desert. And see, this sounds fairly remote. It's like a, it's a remote location, and it's like something we'd see in an old western. Um, can't you just see the, the silhouette of the old gunfighter? He's off in the distance, and he's slowly becoming visible as he's riding toward you in the desert heat. It's very remote. Anyway, Philip gets ready. And he goes, and along the way, there is an Ethiopian eunuch. He's a court official of the Queen of Ethiopia, and her name is Candace. And, and this Ethiopian official, he is in charge of all of the treasure, and he has been to Jerusalem to worship. And he is now returning home, and he's sitting in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah the prophet. The Bible teacher, I. Howard Marshall, says of this Ethiopian and his role in the government. 
He said, this is no insignificant convert. He, he's come to Jerusalem in order to worship. And so therefore, if you, if you think about what we're reading, and you, you kind of ask some questions, you're able to kind of figure some things out. He says, this, this man's at least a God-fearer if he's been to Jerusalem. He's probably been to Jerusalem to the Jewish temple on the occasion of one of the religious festivals. And he's now, he's now going home. And, he's, and because he is an official, he's able to ride in a chariot. And he's spending the journey reading from this scroll, which is part of the Jewish scriptures. So he, he's attuned to things of the Hebrew faith, even though he's Ethiopian. Well, Philip hears this man reading. Because in that culture, reading out loud is common. That's contrary to how we read. But in that Eastern culture, reading out loud is common. And so Philip is hearing because Philip's paying attention. The Spirit says to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And so the chariot's riding along and Philip's running along. He's in tune with the Spirit. He obeys. He's running alongside. Philip runs up. Here's the man reading Isaiah the prophet. And he says... He hollers in the chariot. I'm, I'm thinking stagecoach, right? But he's riding in this chariot. He says, do you understand what you're reading? Not a hello, not a how are you, but do you understand what you're reading? Well, the Ethiopian says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? Which is interesting because he's a royal official and he's having a conversation with someone. He has no idea who this man is, but he just... He, he fesses up. He says, how could I? I need some help. So he invites Philip to come up and sit with him in the chariot. And the passage of Scripture which he is reading is, is this, and it's words of Isaiah, and it's actually found in Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. He was led like a sheep to slaughter, and like a lamb that is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And, and, the, and the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip, please tell me, of whom does this prophet say this? Of himself or of someone else? Please tell me. I, I beg you, I, 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 I beseech you, of whom is Isaiah speaking? Who is this man? A statement which shapes eternity. Tell me about this man, Jesus. So we see in verse 35 that Philip opens his mouth and beginning from this scripture here in Isaiah, he preaches Jesus to the Ethiopian. And Philip probably said something to the effect of the reality that Jesus, like a sheep, was led to a sacrificial altar, which is the cross of Calvary. And the Ethiopian, having been to Jerusalem to worship... He's, he's been around it. He's seen temple worship. 
he would understand the reality of sin and the need to have sins forgiven. That's a part of, of Hebrew worship, the sacrificial atonement system. So the Ethiopian would understand why and what's going on. And I point this out because I think that in our day, there are lots of folks who don't understand the reality of the presence of sin. Jesus came to deal with sin. That's the whole purpose. Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Jesus came to deal with sin. And sin is still a problem in the 21st century. And so Philip, using language that the Ethiopian would have heard regarding the preparation of sacrifices for the atonement of sin, Philip probably talked of Jesus, even as the sinless Son of God, he probably talked of Jesus still needing to be baptized as a type of preparation for the sacrifice as to fulfill obedience to God the Father. And I'm going to speak to that in just a second. So he brings up Jesus and he brings up baptism. And as they're going along the road, they come to some water, and the, and the Ethiopian eunuch says, Look, water! What prevents me from being baptized? A second statement that can shape eternity. Philip may have said something similar to what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 when, when there was an outpouring of the Spirit and Peter says to all these onlookers when he preaches Jesus to them and these onlookers, when they are cut to the heart, when they realize that they've crucified Jesus, Peter says in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, they, they, they say, what can we do? How can we respond? And Peter says, you repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Repentance. Owning up to sin and turning from sin. That's essential. To be forgiven of sin, we have to own up to it, and we have to turn from it. Uh-oh. What's this? Look at verse 37. Some of you have it and some of you don't. Verse 37, it's either written in your text, depending on your translation, or it might be a footnote at the bottom. And we read that Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. The, the answer to the question, what keeps you from being baptized? And, and the Ethiopian answers and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What gives? Why don't all Bibles have verse 37? It's a fair question. Well, I love movies and I love Raiders of the Lost Ark. Anybody remember Indiana Jones? Love Indiana Jones. He's an archaeologist and like archaeologists, Bible scholars are always looking for the earliest manuscripts. And, and what some of your translations have as verse 37 was not found in the oldest sources which have been located. And some Bible scholars assume that verse 37 was added by someone, a scribe, in essence to answer the question of the eunuch. So the Ethiopian, 
orders the chariot stop. And they both go down into the water, and Philip as well as the eunuch, and Philip baptizes this man. They come out of the water. And the Spirit of the Lord snatches Philip away. And the Ethiopian no longer sees him. Philip is gone. But the Ethiopian, he, he goes on his way, we read, he goes on his way rejoicing. But Philip finds himself in Azotus, which is the next major stop heading north. Remember, they're, they're way south. So heading north, he finds himself in Azotus. He passes through and he keeps preaching the gospel until he comes to Caesarea. And we'll catch up with Philip in Caesarea again here in Acts. But today we see that the Ethiopian is the first Gentile non-Jewish convert to the Christian faith. This is after the ascension of Jesus. And why does this matter? This is not a history lesson. Why does this matter? We heard Jesus tell the disciples that they were to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the remotest parts of the earth. Well, the Ethiopian is the first Christ follower on record on the road to the most remote parts. This one event opens the gate for the gospel to travel worldwide. If you think about it, it's possible that you and I are here today because of the obedience of both Philip and that Ethiopian. Two statements that shape eternity. Tell me about Jesus and what would keep me from being baptized. Why do they matter to the church today? Why does baptism matter? Well, one word, obedience, obedience. Luke chapter 3, we read that the word of God came to John in the wilderness, and that's John the Baptist. And John comes into the district around the Jordan River, and he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the classic work, Strong's Concordance. A lot of you probably have that on a bookshelf somewhere, probably gathering dust. But the Strong's Concordance defines the word baptism as an immersion in water performed as a sign of the removal of sin. Now, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus arrives from Galilee. He comes to the Jordan River, and he comes to John to be baptized. Well, John sees Jesus, knows who he is, and tries to prevent him, saying, I have the need to be baptized by you, and and you want to come to me? But Jesus answers John. He says, allow it at this time. For in this way, and, and catch this, It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. You can write that down. See, the Son wants to obey the Father, and the prophet John wants to obey the Son, and thereby obeying the Father. So John baptizes Jesus, and, and after Jesus is baptized, Jesus comes up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens are opened, and John sees the Spirit of God descending as a dove and settling on Jesus. And, and, and behold, a voice from the heavens says, This is my beloved Son, 
with whom I am well pleased. The full picture of the Trinity there. Jesus' baptism signifies that the kingdom of heaven is now here. What was once prophesied and, and pointed to in the Old Testament by the Old Testament prophets is now realized. Looking way, 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 way back, Israel, enslaved in Egypt, you know the story, was called out of Egypt to pass through the waters of death at the Red Sea, brought by God into freedom and new life. In the very same manner, Jesus, the Israelite, the Galilean from Nazareth, brought out of Egypt as a baby to pass through these waters of the Jordan River to fulfill all righteousness in order to bring freedom and new life to all who would turn from sin. Like I said a moment ago, Jesus didn't have to repent from sin. He's the sinless Son of God who would take our sins on Him. He, He would become sin on our behalf. We read in 2 Corinthians, as Jesus was obedient to the Father, we are called to be obedient to Jesus. Paul would write in Romans chapter 6, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. You see, baptism is to signify one's obedience to Christ. Baptism signifies a turning from sin, repentance. And this is what I think can be misunderstood a lot of the time. It's not a one-time turning, but a continual willingness to turn from sin. And this is why it matters to us today. A continual willingness to turn from sin, what that signifies is that Jesus is Lord. And see, Lord, in 2022, unfortunately doesn't have the same weight as it did in first century Galilee when they had all these beings and figures, political figures and whatnot that were vying for their allegiance, Jesus is Lord is quite significant. And that's hard for us to understand. See, baptism shows a willingness to always listen to the Lord to always follow the Lord and to be willing to be corrected by Him. Whether or not we are five or fifty. Whether or not I was saved at 18 or 48 or 88. To always be willing to be corrected by the Spirit of God. So the question, so, so what keeps me from being baptized? Nothing. As long as there is an understanding of Jesus and why he came. Jesus came to deal with sin. 
He came to deal with sin. Jesus' first recorded sermon in Scripture, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent. Jesus' first sermon, repent. And, and, and see, that hasn't changed. And that second statement, which shapes eternity, that one about baptism, it only matters if there is a response to the first statement. Tell me about Jesus. The first statement by the Ethiopian. You see, baptism doesn't save. Jesus saves. And this is why, this is why I, I mention this. There's lots of good, God-fearing folk who don't understand this. There's this desire to be baptized, be baptized, be baptized, be baptized. He needs to be baptized, she needs to be baptized. Ones can get hung up on baptism without first submitting their lives to Jesus and his authority, his, his lordship. Jesus came to deal with sin. Jesus came to be Lord. You know, all authority has already been given to him by the Father. What did Jesus say in, in Mark chapter 8? He said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, You see, Jesus is Savior and Jesus is Lord. You can't have one without the other. <laughs> Jake, <laughs> is all this supposed to be so heavy? What about grace and mercy? Hey, thanks be to God for the grace and the mercy we've been shown by Jesus, by his going to the cross for us. It's only because of Jesus on the cross that we're able to even be here today. We've had our relation, we have the opportunity to have our relationship to the Lord repaired because of Jesus going to the cross and paying for our sin. We're showing that in the words of John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he wanted to give grace and mercy to the, to the world in such a way that he gave his very best. He gave us Jesus so that everyone who, who believes in him would not perish but, but have eternal life. And that's the good news of salvation. Good news is gospel. However, in our effort to focus on Christ's work, we often ignore our responsibility. But see, God is a God of grace and a God of mercy. Jesus came to deal with sin. And Jesus came to be Lord. Those are the two statements that shape eternity. 